0: A very good morning to you. It's great to see you all here this morning, this bright sunny day. My name's Neil, I'm married to the amazing Kate and together we lead this amazing church with some incredible and amazing people in it as you just heard. So um, we are very privileged. If you're new or visiting, you're very, very welcome. It's great to see you. We'd love to connect with you so do chat with the guys on the welcome team. Um, if you didn't catch them on the way in, grab them on the way out. If you are new or visiting, we'd love, as Kate said, to extend an invitation for lunch in the foyer. We've got some pizzas hopefully arriving. I might get a phone call about 12 o'clock, so I need to be finished by then. But you'd be really, really welcome to join us, meet some of the team, ask some questions about the church. But if you connect with the welcome team, it just gives us an opportunity to stay in touch with you. Uh, let you know some of the stuff that's going on in the life of the church. You're not signing your life away at all, but it just helps us connect you to this part of the body of Christ or whichever part of the body of Christ it might be that God is calling you to. But if you're here for the first time, you're very welcome. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. If you were here last week, uh, following on from our series over the summer, over the summer we did a series looking at why the church matters, Uh, but last week we, we kind of started to explore what the church, kind of along the lines of what the church is supposed to be like by looking at the one another phrases from the New Testament. Because when it comes to the church, and specifically in our context when it comes to this church, some of the questions we might ask ourselves or we perhaps ought to be asking ourselves is, you know, who are we as a church? What does it feel like? What's it like to be part of this church? What what does it mean to be part of this church? What's our church culture, for want of a better expression? As I say, you might be here for the first time this morning. Maybe you've been coming along for the past few weeks. You could have been here for the past 35 years. But no matter how long you've been around, some of the questions we all ask ourselves will be things like, "I I wonder what this church is actually like. I wonder what it will be like. I wonder what's important to this church. What does this church value? Now, every church is going to be distinct and different in some way or another, and that's going to be based on a whole host of different things, but the Bible suggests, I believe, that there are certain things, there's a certain culture, if you like, that should be consistent from one uh, church to another. In other words, when it comes to the church, we really should know what to expect based on the things that the Bible outlines. And if that's the case, if that's true, then what are some of those biblical values? What are some of those biblical behaviors and expectations that are meant to define the culture of pretty much any church, really? And I can't think of a better way for us to understand God's intentions for what his church is called to be and what sets his church and his people apart from everything, really, in the world. Than the one another's of the Scripture. We talked about them last week, so uh, if you missed that, you can catch up with that on on um, on the podcast. But let's have a look this morning at Romans chapter twelve, starting in verse nine. It says this: Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as we said last week, the phrase uh, "this phrase one another" it comes from the Greek word "alelon," and it, uh, somewhat unsurprisingly, means one another, each other, mutually, reciprocally, and it, it occurs a uh, hundred times in the New Testament. And around 59 of those times are specific commands about how we are and how we are not to relate to one another. And at least 15 of these one another's are um, to love one another. And so that's what we're going to dig into today. And this passage that we're going to look at today, it sort of comes hot on the heels of Paul saying in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed uh, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And last week, just as we saw that the context for Romans 12 is Romans 1 to 11, so the context for our passage today are these verses from the opening of the chapter, opening of chapter 12. And what we're looking at this morning is what does it look like to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our true and proper worship. And loving one another is a very good place to start. Both the Old and the New Testaments call us to love our neighbors. Jesus gives us very specific instructions, uh, gives very specific instructions to his disciples as to how they were to love and treat their neighbors. And not only the ones that they liked, but the ones that they didn't. The call of Jesus to love everyone. Even our enemies is, is clearly laid out in the scriptures. In John uh, 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And then John reminds the disciples of that imperative in, in 1 John 3:11, where he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And this whole idea of loving one another, it's woven throughout the entire scriptures. It's like a golden thread. It's not some abstract concept. It's a very practical reality in our day-to-day lives. Jesus says this in John 13, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so, as those who have received the abundance of God's mercy and grace that we talked about last week from Romans uh, chapters 1 to 11. As those who are now called to live the sacrificial and transformed lives that we see from Romans 12, 1 to 3, we have all been called to love one another. And, and this loving one another, it's all rooted in God's mercy that we talked about last week from Romans 1 to 11. Someone once wrote that True Christians are a mercy-moved, mercy-carrying, mercy-shaped people who live by mercy and who minister by mercy. And it's the mercy of God that we saw from last week, Warham's chapters 1 to 11, that we have been recipients of, that we have all received in and through the person of Jesus, demonstrated by his life and his death and his resurrection, that lies at the very heart of the mercy that we are then to show others the love that we have for one another irrespective of who they are and in Romans uh, chapter 12 verse 2 Paul is basically inviting us to a better way of doing life he says this he says do not conform to the pattern of the, the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will And then what he does, he goes on in in verses 9 to 21 to to illustrate, if you like, to unpack what this good, pleasing, and perfect will looks like when it comes to how we are to love one another. So that's all just preamble. What we're going to get to this morning is um, we're going to look at our need for transformation uh, when it comes to how we think about love. Then we're going to look at our need to practice biblical love, and then we're going to look at our need to live in community with one another. So why do we need to be transformed You know, when it comes to how we think of uh, love? Well, in verse 2, uh, Paul talks about how if we've received the mercy of God, that he's outlined in chapter 1 to 11, then we all need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the truth is that in view of God's mercy, our minds could do with some transformation. I don't know about you, that's certainly true for me. And transformation is what comes from having our minds renewed by God. And one of the ways in which God in his goodness and his grace changes our minds and renews our minds and transforms us and changes the way that we think and the way that we behave and and transforms us with ever increasing glory into the image of his son Jesus Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit and um, this funny little thing, the word of God. And that's why this book, uh, with all of its challenges and difficulties, is absolutely central to the life of the disciple and the life of uh, the renewed mind and the transformed life. It's um, it's what we do is we as we give ourselves to the study of the scriptures. The psalmist says in Psalm one, um, delighting in the law, the law of the Lord, and meditating on that law day and night. And what meditation means in in Psalm one, it's sort of think of like a cow chewing on the cud, and just. Take a few words or a few verses of scripture and then just chewing on them again and again and again and again and again and again again until every last little bit of goodness has been extracted from it. You know, you don't have to be a theologian to study and to meditate on the word of God. You just have to sit quietly in God's presence, invite his Holy Spirit to come and begin to chew to um, whatever that is, that word. And, you know, just take a few verses. Start with the Gospels. Start with, you've never done it before. You don't know where to start. I mean, there are bits of this that are so complicated, right? Don't start in some of them, right? You know the ones. You know, start with the gospel. Start with the life of Jesus. Jesus is incredibly attractive. He's very winsome. Just start there. And um, read the Psalms. Dig into the Psalms. Just Invite God's presence to come and just um, chew on the word of God. Just take a few verses and let the power of the Holy Spirit transform your heart and life by the renewal of your mind. Then, and, and slowly but surely, as the psalmist again says in Psalm 1, you will become like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither and whatever you do will prosper. Um, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to bring about us uh, in us those new ways of thinking that result in new ways of living. Uh, for many of us, it, it's our background, it's our culture, it's our experiences of life. There are so many things that inform the, our view of the, the, the world in which we live, and, and that's not necessarily all bad, but as the people of God. Our view of God, our view of the world, our view of ourselves, our view of one another, needs to come from that place of transformation that comes about by having our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our lives renewed by the Spirit of God. Because then, and only then, will we be able to test and approve what God's will is—His good and perfect and pleasing will—and just like everything else in our lives, our view of love has to also be transformed to that is much more like Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that we know so incredibly well and yet for some reason seems to evade so many of us where love and our love for one another is described like this. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's what we need. That's the transformation that we need in our lives the renewal of our mind. So what might that look like in practice? How are we to love? And in these verses in Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, Paul's kind of giving this sort of framework for what loving one another might look like and and how our love for one another is to reflect the true nature of God. And I just want to um, fairly briefly, as briefly as I can, pull out some of these for us to consider as we just think about how are we doing? How are we loving one another? You know, when we're thinking back to what's the church culture, what's it like to be part of this church? How does this church love one another? How do we love one another? And first of all, he says this in verse 9, love must be sincere. Uh, the way that we love one another, it has to be, it has to be real, it has to be genuine. And, and the idea here is essentially uh, uh, the way that we love one another is to be without hypocrisy. And as you probably know, uh, hypocrisy is like from the Greek word, and it was used to describe an actor in a play who would often be playing more than one role. And back in um, early Greek theater, when the actor would change their role, what they would do is they would change the mask that they were wearing and swap it for a different one. And so over time, this Greek word took on an extended meaning to refer to anyone who's wearing a figurative mask and pretending to be someone or something that they're not. And what Paul is saying here when he writes, um, love must be sincere, is that the way that we love one another should be without masks. So many of us spend so much of our time consciously, subconsciously, being different people to different people in different contexts. As we grow in our relationship with one another, we ought to be taking down those masks by the grace of the Spirit of God. When we love one another, as we've been called to love one another, we're not to be like you know, the Greek actors playing different roles and wearing different masks depending on what scene we're in. Love is meant to be sincere. And what this means is whether it's towards one another here in the church and the people that sat around you or whether it's towards people who are outside the church, the way that we relate to people needs to be real and authentic and genuine. It needs to be sincere, rooted and grounded in the mercy of God. God, our love for one another needs to be sincere. And it's out of the love that God has shown us, in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, that we are to love one another. So love is to be sincere, is to be genuine, without hypocrisy. Have a look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Loving one another means being devoted to one another. It means honoring one another. You know, what does devotion, what does that mean? What does devotion look like? Well, just like being part of a family, it it means being committed to one another. Devoted, irrevocably given over to, is the Old Testament definition of devotion. And being committed to doing life together in the way that Dave and Sam were talking about. So that we can care for one another. We can learn to love one another. Amongst other things, it means bearing one another's burdens. It means um, bearing and with one another in love, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, praying with and for one another, and honoring one another above ourselves in both speech and thought. And with this phrase he uses um, of being devoted to one another, Paul is painting this picture of, of um, the love that exists in a family uh, as being key to sort of. Christian uh, fellowship, and, you know, that's not always straightforward. Families are complex places, but the commitment to love remains. The devotion to one another, in and out of all of the highs and lows, and the seasons that we go through with our siblings and our parents and in-laws, and the whole gamut, commitment and devotion lasts. And as we choose to be devoted to one another, our love for one another, grows and deepens. Now let's have a look at um, verses 16 to 18. Live in harmony with one another if it's possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You'll have heard us say many times before that whenever you get this number of people and actually much less than this number of people together, there's inevitably going to be some kind of conflict, some kind of disagreement that is going to crop up from time to time. It's not a case of if, it's a case of when. So if you're new here and you're thinking, oh, these people are lovely, they all get on. Yeah, they do. But um, it's not without disagreement. But these verses here in uh, Romans 12 are about what I think these verses that we're looking at, 16 to 18, what I think Wimber, John Wimber, who founded this thing of churches called the Vineyard, used to call spiritual generosity. It's what John and Ellie Mumford, who planted this church 35 years ago, last week actually, um, would describe as always choosing to think the best of the other. Ellie would always say, always think the best, always think the best, always think the best of the other. Um, but the truth is, with all the spiritual generosity and all the thinking the best in the world, conflict, disagreement, falling out. They're just part of being in relationship with other people. It's just the reality of human relationships. And it's not conflict that matters so much, but how we handle ourselves in the midst of conflict, that's what's important. And I haven't got time to go into it here. You'll be glad to know. But the Bible is very helpful on how we are to handle the inevitable conflicts and disagreements that will spring up when you are walking alongside other followers of Jesus. Uh, but for now, all I will say is that the mandate on all of us is, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, is that we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on us, if it is at all possible, let us be people who live in harmony with one another and at peace with one another, not necessarily agreeing with everyone. It's okay to disagree. Let's just learn to disagree well and have healthy adult conversations, but that's a whole other sermon series. Now, uh, before we come into land, and I am coming to land, I promise you, um, I just wanted to touch on that fantastically weird bit at the end, the quote from Proverbs 20, in, in verse 20, is it? Um, where it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's one of those... Don't you just love that verse? And it's like, you kind of read the passage and it's like, love, 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 and then it ends with that and you're like, bruh, bruh, bruh. you kind of just sweep it under the carpet. As I was reading it last week, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. As I was reading it I was thinking, I can think of at least 10 people in the room who are going, what? Um, now, I don't know about you, uh, but in this, you know, all the context of all this loving, this doesn't sound like a massively loving motivation for being kind to someone in need. It kind of sounds like by feeding your enemy or by giving them a drink to quench their thirst, not only are you doing something kind, good for you, but you're secretly doing something really horrible, dumping hot coals on their head, which is bad for them. It sort of sounds like the ultimate passive aggression. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, it's kind of how it reads but i think if it's interpreted that way i'm not entirely sure that it's in the spirit of the chapter or indeed the council of the whole council of scripture so there's got to be something else something else about it it doesn't make any sense so uh, but that said i think it is a pretty odd verse and i didn't just want to sweep over it much as i was tempted to uh, it's a quote from proverbs Um, And therefore, it's possible, so people with much bigger brains than me have said, that it could be referring to atonement, kind of like we see in Isaiah 6, so hot coals, Isaiah 6, when it says, you know, and behold, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on his temple, and the throne of his temple filled in smoke and billows and all that kind of stuff. And... It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his his hand, which he'd taken from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away from your sin atoned for. So it could be about kindness leading us to repentance, which is kind of convenient because that's what it says in Romans 2. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so the idea is that perhaps... Your act of kindness to your enemy might bring them to a place of contrition before God. And indeed with you and restoration of relationships. One interpretation I came across, um, I quite like this. I don't know how true it is, but it was around the idea of how in ancient times people needed to get to have their to keep a fire going. People needed to to keep a fire going all the time so that they would have enough food for cooking and for warmth. And if your fire went out you would have to go to someone, maybe even to somebody that you've upset, to get some live coals from their fire. And these would then have been carried on your head in some kind of container, as is the way that things were carried in those days as you walked back to your hearth. And so the person giving the live coals would be meeting your desperate needs, perhaps even the needs of an enemy, and showing this outstanding kindness by passing on some of their hot coals. And if the container were indeed uh, piled full of heaped uh, burning coals, our friend, or indeed our enemy, would be sure to get home with enough embers to be able to get the fire going. So the one who may in the past have been injured by the neighbor in need would be returning injury for kindness by blessing them with what they needed most, coal. Anyway, I will leave you to mull that one for yourselves and reach whatever conclusion you think really actually fits best with not only the chapter, what Paul is trying to say, but also fits with the whole council of scripture um, about how we love one another. Very lastly, uh, lastly, this is, I promise, is last. Hospitality, hospitality. At the end of verse 13, Paul writes just two words, practice hospitality. And I guess if these verses are about how we are to love one another, the idea of practicing hospitality is where we get to do it as part of a community of faith. And, you know, this isn't just a call for those of us who are cordon bleu chefs or have very comfortable and tidy homes. This mandate, this imperative is to all believers practice hospitality, and it points to mercy and grace, the mercy and grace that we have received through God's mercy and grace and his goodness, mercy and grace being offered and received Uh, to those who are our friends, to those who are our enemies, uh, to those of the Lord's people who are in need, and perhaps, most importantly, to the stranger. And uh, just like the Lord's Supper, we're going to celebrate in a a minute, hospitality, hospitality, Welcome, inclusion, all these things, all the ideas that come with hospitality, they're all about our hope for a future celebration, the hope that we have in Christ that we will all sit together with him and with one another at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And one of the things I love about this verse, these two words, is that it says, practice hospitality. It's like practice you know, you don't have to be the hostess with the most mostess. It's like, I get it. You're not very good at it. Practice. Give it a go. Try it out. And if we want to practice hospitality, we can all do that right here and now. We get to do this all of the time. There's not a moment where we're not able to practice hospitality. Um, and practicing hospitality is a massive part of what this is all about. It's what... Dave and Sam and Carol um, were saying this morning about what our small groups are about. It's what about any gathering of the body of Christ is about. It's about loving one another in practice. It's loving our enemies. It's welcoming the stranger. And it's it's here. It's in this space. It's at the beginning with the coffee. It's. In the break, it's what happens afterwards in the prayer time. It's afterwards when you come for pizza or whatever. It's in our small groups, you know, which is why it's so incredibly important for every single one of us to be in a small group. Small groups aren't optional extras. They're not bolt-ons. They are an integral and vital part of what it means to be a part of this church. John Wimber, you thought I was mean. People used to come to John Wimber. John Wimber led the Anaheim Vineyard in, in California for many, many years, it had about 6,000 people in it. And people used to come up to him and occasionally and would say, uh, John, can I have a word? And he'd be like, yeah, okay, well, you know. And, uh, and they'd start saying something critical about the church. You know what you should do, blah, blah, blah. And they'd start listing off, right? It doesn't happen here, it's amazing. I mean, it happened there, right? And they were rattling off a list of, you know, what you need to do is what you need to do is what you need. To do. And he'd just say, sorry, can I just interrupt you? and he'd say, you're in a small group. And they'd go, oh, no, no, I'm not. And he'd go, yeah, you're not part of this church. And he'd just walk off. Brutal. I would never do that. I would never even think it, possibly. It's an integral part of what being the body is. is how we belong to one another. You know, all the language that we've been talking about over the summer about ears and feet and eyes. You know, an ear doesn't work, you know, when it's just on the side of the road. Over there, ears, not much cop. Feet, just over there, not very nice, pretty useless limbs, organs, bot, bits of body, just flung, no use. Bring them together, connected, put them in a body, and suddenly, they do amazing things. So, if you haven't signed up yet for a small group this time, they're all on the website, we've been advertising them back, get involved, try one out, you know? Uh, this is where we get to do the stuff. It's where we get to do all this stuff of loving one another because you don't get to choose who comes to your small group. That's what's so great about them. We don't just hang out in little happy circles. We get to choose our friends. So we hang out socially with all of our friends, all the people we like who are basically people like us. And they think the same as us. They reflect all the same ideas. We've got the same... uh, We all agree with everything, right? Small group is tricky. You never know who's going to show up at your door. And chances are there are going to be some really, really tricky people in there. And the invitation from the Spirit of God is, will you love them? And of course, you will. And whether you're leading, hosting, or just going along, you get to practice hospitality with all the people in your group. Love the other people in your group, some of them that you'll know, some of them that you won't, some of them you'll like, some of them you won't like quite so much. Um, this is where it rubber hits the road. This is where we get to be the church. And so it's vital. It's not just an extra. And because of COVID, all things have been disrupted. Our patterns, our routines have been disrupted. You know, as these guys were saying, it's like you have to schedule this stuff. You have to put it in your diary. You have to be intentional and say, no matter how I feel at the end of my day, I'm just going to go. And if you can't find one that works for you, find one that is at a time that works for you. And if there isn't one that works at a time for you, come and talk to us and you can start one that runs at a time that works for you. Maybe, right as we rebuild together as we reconnect to the body of Christ as we, as we deepen and seek to deepen our relationships both with one God uh, with one another, the invitation to be extended by the Spirit of God is that we should join with our brothers and sisters in Christ in loving one another and I really must stop.